thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hello and welcome to the fourth instalment of the Naked Scientist's Mission to Mars. I'm Chris Smith and this week we're debating whether we should be colonising our cosmic next-door neighbour. Do the technological and scientific spin-offs justify the spend or would the resources be much better invested here on Earth? Plus, in the news, could a faecal transplant alter your personality... Does the 21st of October 2015 ring any bells for you? You'll find out why it should later on. And what these noisy creatures... ..have in common with guys who like fast cars. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Every year, more than 10,000 people in the UK suffer from a severe infection with Clostridium difficile, that's known as C. diff for short. It leads to severe long-term diarrhoea and inflammation in the intestine, and it can be life-threatening. Recently, the idea of faecal transplants, or transpusions, has been gaining traction. But according to an article in the British Medical Journal by Tim Spector from King's College London, there are some risks, as he explains to Katani. It's been very hard to get figures, but the, the US is, is leading the world, I think, in this at the moment. And there's uh, one centre in Boston that has all these uh, poo donors and is supplying over 430 centres across the uh, US on a, a regular basis. And they're uh, shipping something like 50 different uh, treatments, over 50 different treatments every single week. What are the issues around having this relatively small pool of donors that is potentially treating so many people? It's crucial that the, the donors that are being used, uh, both uh, in the US and in the UK, are properly screened because um, the obvious reasons like infections, which is being pretty well dealt with, but the idea these people could transmit their microbes, which stay with the other person for the rest of their lives, is, is something a bit... Um, spooky and we haven't really thought about much. So they could be transmitting uh, microbes that make them in more tendency to get fat. They could be transmitting microbes that make them more likely to be anxious or stressed or have some mental illness. And so we really need to be screening these people very well to make sure that you don't replace one disease uh, with another in, in a few years' time because we don't know the long-term effects of these and also realising that many people are, because they're relatively simple to do yourself, um, taking matters into their own hands. And do we know whether there are any ill effects from poo transplants that have taken place, either officially or, or DIY, so to speak? At least uh, six or 7,000 recorded transplants that we know of have been done, and remarkably few adverse um, events have been uh, reported. 
There are a couple of anecdotal reports that um, two women uh, gained weight after they'd received some samples and they'd recovered from their infection, and it turned out that the donors were on the chubby side. You know, anecdotally, some people think they might have changed personality, but it's very subjective. So, you know, at the moment, it's it's a life-saving operation that seems to have very few risks. But as people start to think about, and we do trials for transplants in other uh, less life-saving conditions, such as obesity and diabetes, colitis, neurotal bowel syndrome, then I think the, the balance of risks and benefits is going to be much uh, more important. So how do we go forward from here? What is the future for poo transplantation? Well, hopefully countries around the world are going to start setting up centres for this, invest some money with poo banks like they have in, in Boston. The regulations need to be changed because at the moment in the UK we're not allowed to actually import uh, the frozen poo from Boston, although they've offered it, which is crazy, because there's also people storing their own poo for when they get ill later, because the best donor is going to be yourself. So uh, we need to start thinking about this. And at the moment, we can store our own poo, but it, um, it would break the, any regulations to give it back to yourself. How can we move forward with finding out more about how to use the power of the, the bugs in the gut? I think one way is to start getting people used to testing their own microbes in the same way we, we currently test them for um, uh, blood in the stool for, for colon uh, cancer. Now it's pretty simple. You can test it genetically, sending a small sample uh, by post on a cotton wool bud. Uh, nowhere is doing this on the NHS. I think we really need some bigger organisations to start doing this, and so hospitals should have access to this. So donors or people thinking about it could actually look and see what their microbes really are before and after uh, they have these these um, transplants or they're thinking about them. Mark my words, I think it's going to be big business. That was Tim Spector from King's College down in London. Sometimes severe head injuries can leave a patient in what is dubbed a persistent vegetative state. But recently, using a brain scanning technique called fMRI, scientists have been able to show that some of these people are actually conscious and they're capable of communicating with the scientists. They're just not able to move. Now, Davinia Fernandez-Espeo has uncovered why this happens. There's a disconnect, she says, in the brain, which prevents the thalamus, a relay station in the centre of the nervous system, and the motor cortex, the area of the brain that produces movements, from exchanging information. Greer Jackson caught up with her to hear why this happens. So in this paper, we were looking for structural damage in the brain of patients who appear to be in a vegetative state. This is, they don't show any signs, any external signs of being aware of themselves, of the environment. But we do know that some of these patients are actually fully conscious. This is a small percentage of them, and they're just incapable to move. So the first step for this study was to try and identify awareness using these fMRI techniques, asking them to imagine they were playing tennis, imagine they were moving their hands. And once we had a patient who we could confirm they were actually aware, then we did the second part of the study. And then my understanding is you also looked at healthy people and mapped what bits of their brain lit up as well. That's right. So up until now, we were not entirely sure what the differences are between just imagining a movement or actually physically performing that movement. And that was key in this, in this study because this is the difference 
between the things that they can or can't do, these patients. So they can imagine a movement, but they can't actually perform that movement. So we needed to see the difference between these two processes to know what were the areas that are key for you to give this step further and actually move. And we found that um, there is a very significant pathway, which is the one connecting the thalamus, which is a small region kind of in the deep uh, of your brain, and the motor cortex, which is the region that ultimately is going to send the signal to your limbs to move. So in a way, these two regions appear to be disconnected, so the information can travel from one to another, and that's what was stopping these patients from being able to actually externally move. That surprises me because you would have thought patient to patient the sort of structural damage in the brain would be very different but you think it's down to this one sort of connection? Well that's a good question. So in this study we focused on patients with a very specific type of damage which is traumatic ring injury from a car accident. What we don't know yet is whether this specific damage is going to appear also in patients of different etiologies and that would be the next logic step to this study. What happens in these patients that means that there is that disconnect in the brain? So basically, when we're talking about a a car accident, there's speed and a sudden deceleration. And what happens is that the fibres that connect different regions of your brain break in the process. So that ends up leaving regions that can't speak to each other again. And how often, how common is this type of injury? It is very common and they're quite recent. So we only see these patients in the last few years. And this is because we're talking about very severe accidents that before all the advances in the medical care wouldn't have survived the accident. Oh, that's really interesting. I mean, I suppose great to show that we've had uh, so much progression in this, but equally now we've got a whole new other set of caseloads of, of difficult things to solve. That's right. We're getting really good at solving problems in our organs and our body, but the brain still something we're still kind of trying to understand. Does that mean then now that you've identified this blockage that you can do something about it? Might there be a treatment down the line that could help these patients? Yeah, and that's the, the most exciting thing about this uh, finding. We're still very early in, in, in that direction, but I think it's a good first step. So we can't regrow those fibres that are gone. That can happen. But we can do something to make those connections that are still present to work harder to try to compensate for the damage. And there's several ways we can do these. We're still studying what's the best approach. But anything that you can think that could make those fibres that are still there work harder and make these two regions talk to each other could help these patients in the future. How might you be able to make these these connections work harder? So there's several possibilities. One possibility could be a pharmacological treatment. And there's also a number of brain stimulation techniques that can help give these regions like a little push to, to try and work a little bit harder. So how far away do you think are we from this type of thing? I know you said this is sort of a good first step, but how long are we looking at here? Yeah, that's difficult to tell. We're starting to try some of these ideas about how to stimulate some of these regions now. So we're still a few years away from knowing the answer to these. Birmingham University's Davinia Fernandez Espeo, and she published that work this week in the Journal of the American Medical Association, Neurology. The idea was to build an organism that was able to create a drug 
and then could effectively turn itself into a pill. In this month's Naked Genetics podcast, we delve into the world of synthetic biology, building living machines from molecular parts that can do anything you can imagine. Plus, is sociability in your genes? And our gene of the month is looking for wedded bliss. Listen and download now at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. You're listening to The Naked Scientist. I'm Chris Smith. Still to come, having explored in previous programmes the nuts and bolts of sending mankind to Mars, this week we're going to be debating whether we actually should do that at all. But first, does the date, October 21, 2015, mean anything to you? Well, if you're a fan of Back to the Future, then it probably will. That was the date that Marty McFly and Doc Brown travelled to in the movie 30 years ago, and just thinking about that makes me feel old. Now, Peter Cowley is with us to discuss which of the technologies that the duo experienced in their futuristic 2015 have actually since been invented. Let's kick off. Wearable technology. First say that the last time I saw this film was in 1986. I can't remember the film. I should have watched it again recently. Uh, He was using, he was talking into his jacket. So some sort of microphone and and speaker system, which as as you've probably seen people wandering around streets at the moment with the new watches were actually talking into their wrists. Yeah, so wearable technology built into clothes, fibre, which is um, conductive. There's a huge amount of work going on there. Not nothing that's yet sort of a killer application for it, but lots of interesting stuff, a bit like Internet of Things, lots of new ideas that haven't yet been adopted. The other thing that's quite big in the film is um, video conferencing. They make a really big thing of that. And, and that, of course, has come to pass, hasn't it? The it's, idea of sort of talking to each other on a big screen. Yes. I mean, that came... You could do that using PC. In fact, you could do that using video conferencing probably 20 years ago. You could do it on our own laptops and PCs probably, what, 10, 15 years ago? But it's when the smartphone came out about eight, nine years ago that it made a big difference. And, of course, with facilities on there such as Skype and and FaceTime, it's made it very easy to do that. The other thing that uh, Marty gets ripped up about by a bunch of people in the, the shopping mall is he goes into an arcade and wants to play a game using a joystick. And they're all going, you know, how, you know, 20th century is that? Because it's all about just moving your hands around to move things. And that's, that's just basically the Wii, isn't it? Um, yes. In fact, it's more than that. I don't, you may not know, but some cars now are starting to get gest- gesture control so that you don't have to take your fingers off the steering wheel in order to move your fingers around. I thought you were going to say you didn't have to have your hands on the steering wheel. Well, I was steering. watching some Tesla, <laughs> Tesla 7.0 software came out and people don't need to. There's some really quite frightening uh, videos on the internet at the moment about So you can that. drive hands-free? You can let go. You can press a button like you could do with um, cruise control and it's then steering control effectively. Because the other thing that Tesla have got is a, a charging robot which comes up to their car and then connects itself to charge the car up. And that was something that was made a big thing of in Back to the Future because they drive into a fueling station and there's this robot that comes along and, and fills your, your car with fuel. And it's very, very similar, although Tesla's one is slightly smaller. So that's something that's come yes, to Yes, it doesn't seem necessary, that really, because the, the, the induction loops will be available before long. In fact, I think you can get an option for a Tesla or other cars possibly where you just park it in the garage and it'll charge it without any form of contact. What about these um, self-tying shoelaces? That would be good, wouldn't it? Uh, would it be good? <laughs> I don't think it's I don't quite intrigued with that one. Yes, I mean, uh, as I'm getting older. In fact, it turns out, actually, that... Uh, <laughs> well, I, you use I, this I as was... an index of your own ability. Like, <laughs> yes, I can still exactly. tie my shoelaces, well, therefore I'm OK. It's like Google Glasses. If that ever gets adopted, I'll be able to recognise people in the street then when I get to older. <laughs> well, actually, Nike have said that, that they are going to bring out some kind of self-tying shoe fixer by the end of this year. Yes, so, I saw there's a patent has been... Yeah, do you think that's, is, it, is it going to get realised? What is though? the point of this? I mean, we, For we, people who can't tie up their shoelaces, one presumes. Then why don't they have slip-ons? 
What's special? I mean, if you've got special shoes possibly for running or for um, mountain climbing, one hopes you're supple enough to be able to get to your feet. So you don't think that's going to catch on? Uh, I, I don't see the reason Even to catch on. Even if it does tie itself up. What about other films and, and things that have well, had a sort of, they've been based in the future? Yeah, the one that always used to be like the film I really enjoyed the most was a space, 2001 A Space Odyssey in a very geeky way, which came out in the late 60s. And there were things in there that Arthur C. Clarke had, had sort of made some futuristic guesses at, uh, things like the uh, tablets. I mean, have you seen the film, Chris? Or? Well, a long time ago. Yeah, there's a point where he sort of seems to be eating a variety of different sorts of mustards or something, and then he's got a tablet in front of him, which is he's watching some sort of movie or something on there. What's interesting is that Arthur C. Clarke had not foreseen the fact that touchscreens would be around, which is about right, because touchscreens only were patented in the late 60s, early 70s, and he wrote the book in the 68, so it's still got buttons on it. So, yeah, clearly that, that's come about, though only in the last 10 years ago. The, the interesting thing about, I think, Back to the Future is that they totally missed the boat on, on smart telephones, didn't they? I mean, they, in the film, everyone's got a fax machine. They seem to think that fax machines were going to be ubiquitous. Everyone was going to have one of those, almost a fax machine on your wrist. And I don't know why they went down that no, route. No, it's strange because it was late enough that the personal computer was started to come around. The apples were, be, were produced in volume and lots of other manufacturers. The IBM PC, of course, had come out as well. So who knows why they didn't. And email was around as well for academics, though not for the general consumer. Entrepreneur and the naked scientist tech pundit Peter Cowley. Thank you, Peter. It's sometimes claimed that men buy fast cars and large camera lenses, amongst other things, to make up for deficiencies in, shall we say, other areas. But this behaviour might not be unique in the animal kingdom, because now scientists at Cambridge University have shown that howler monkeys, which are natives of South and Central America, do something very similar with the sounds that they produce. Connie Orbach went to meet researcher Jacob Dunn to hear how. It's really strange, isn't it? It's like a cross between a lion and a frog or something. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it really is amazing. They they sound like it's a much bigger animal. That was actually the sound of a seven kilo howler monkey. And they can make this immense noise because of the specialised shape of a bone in their throat. What we found was that there was a really close relationship between the size of this hyoid bone, which is a sort of big cup-shaped bone in, in howler monkeys, which they use for resonating sound around and making a really low-frequency call, and that closely matched the number of males that they had in each of the species. And so those species that just had one male, usually in any group, tend to have a very big vocal organ, whereas those species that have multiple males tend to have a very small vocal organ. And what we also found is that there was a really close relationship between the size of this bone in the throat and the size of their testes. So species that had a very big vocal organ had very small testes, and species that had a very small vocal organ had very big testes. So let me get this right. Loud roar. Smaller testicles, but big harem. Small roar. Bigger testicles. So it seems the howler monkey just can't have both. But what's it got to do with how many other males there are? In those species that tend to live in groups with just one male, they try and defend groups of females very aggressively. And and in different species that have uh, more males in the group, uh, there's no longer the need for this male-male shouting competition. But because 
females will often copulate with several males within the group. So the sort of pressure shifts towards them having to compete for each other after they've copulated with the females. And so they evolve bigger testicles so that they can produce more or faster sperm. OK, so that makes sense. Now, this hyoid bone must be quite something to have such a big effect. What does it even look like? In humans, it's a very simple little bone. It fits on top of the larynx, just under the chin in the throat. It's a little horseshoe-shaped bone. But howler monkeys have evolved uh, this different kind of shape to their bone, and they've turned it into a sort of bulbous, expanded, cup-shaped um, thing, which uh, they actually have some soft tissue as well that they, that they blow into. It's a sort of air sac. But it varies hugely from species to species. So the males have much bigger hyoids than females. Um, but even within the males across the species, there's tenfold variation from the smallest species to the biggest. Is this a model you've got here or is it a real skull? No, this is a cast, yeah. And this is the hyoid bone? Yeah. It's a really, really weird looking bone. It's half a balloon shaped almost. And it seems to be sat kind of right underneath the jaw there, doesn't it? And so why can't they have both? Why, why do they have to have one or the other? We don't know the answer to that fully yet, but there are two different ways, or at least two different ways, that this might work, and it could be that both of them are working at the same time. One of them is that there's sort of limited energy to be able to invest in different things. The expression of these kinds of traits are costly, and there might just not be the energy available to do both of those things during development. That would be one mechanism. The other system um, would be that once you're sort of down one evolutionary trajectory, there's kind of no point in investing in both. So as you become a species that has a big hyoid bone, which means that you produce a really low-frequency call, you become so dominating that your social system becomes that of just one male in the group. There's all those classic arguments about big cars or... Flashing the cash is maybe uh, compensating for something else, but do we actually see this in people ever, a trade-off? There has been only one study, as far as I know, um, where they've looked at this kind of trade-off, and they found something really interesting, actually. They found that the voices of men, when played back to, to women that were judged to be more attractive, also had lower quality sperm which suggests that there might also be this sort of similar kind of trade-off, but it certainly suggests that something might be going on. And I wouldn't be surprised if there really is. That was Dr Jacob Dunn. He's from the University of Cambridge, and he published that study this week in the journal Current Biology. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith. If you'd like to get in touch with us, it's chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can find us on Facebook or tweet at Naked Scientists. In the last three programmes, we've been considering the prospects of manned missions to Mars. We've looked at what it takes to be an astronaut, how to get people across interplanetary space, and last week we heard how we might go about building a base on the Red Planet. Here at The Naked Scientist, we've been on a trip. Destination, Mars. We've learnt what it takes to be an astronaut from stomach-churning training. <laughs> Expect I look like a burner dog. I can feel my hands really pressurised. Oh, it's difficult to lift my hands. That feels like you've done the biggest roller coaster ride ever. <laughs> 
to the hundreds of silent workers who put our heroes in space. You've got the engineers who designed these things, there are the people who built it, there are the medics, there are the doctors, there are the lawyers, there are the people like myself looking after the education programme. The list is truly endless. But even the bravest astronaut may still quake in their boots when they hear of the journey conditions. Oh, blimey, two weeks without a shower? Uh, well, imagine turning off the gravity and turning on the shower. Water would go flying everywhere, so if you want to take a bath, it's going to be a sponge bath. Oh, and all the other hazards. Probably the main consideration is, is the radiation environment. We're leaving the protection of the Earth's atmosphere, and you are then subject to the full force of solar wind and cosmic radiation. We're well aware of the effect uh, of radiation on the human body. It does not do nice things, and you've got to fly through that for nine months. Once there, there's a whole host of new problems, especially if we want to stay for a while. If we want to survive, we go somewhere that's warm and cosy and has resources. Now, if you want to go somewhere warm, that's rather incompatible with finding somewhere where there's accessible ice. Uh, If you want water... And finally, if we've worked out all of that, we're going to have to consider the long-term impacts of settling on Mars. Whereas it may be the case that the initial settlers could come back to Earth if if things go badly, for those born in Mars, it's extremely unlikely that their physiology could cope with a a return to Earth. Their their bone density wouldn't be right for it. So we, we have to get this right. Well, after all that and a whole trip to Mars, we realised we'd forgotten to ask one... Big question. Should we even be going at all? What do you think? When we asked this question on Facebook, Michael McLaughlin made a good point. Robotic exploration is safer, less costly, returns amazing science and image results. So why not just stick with robots? Indeed, why send a person when we can deploy a robot? And can we really justify the expense as well as the potential human cost should we risk making a mess on Mars like we have here on Earth? Or do we think we actually really do need an inhabitable bolt hole in case there's some kind of disaster destined to strike us here on Earth? With us to debate the case is Sanjeev Gupta. He's a researcher from Imperial College in London. He's a science planner on NASA's Curiosity mission. BBC journalist Richard Hollingham, who presents the Space Boffins podcast, is here. Jill Stewart is from the London School of Economics, and she's an expert on the politics of outer space. Who would have thought it? Outer space now has legal treaties and even politicians worrying about what's going on out there. She's also the editor-in-chief of the journal Space Policy. Ryan MacDonald is a would-be astronaut who signed up for the Mars One programme. And Carolyn Crawford is a space scientist from the Institute of Astronomy at the University of Cambridge. So let's first of all consider the case for, for the robots then. Carolyn, what, what do you think about this? I think it's a no-brainer. Certainly in the short term, robots are the way to go. They're, we've just heard about some of the hazards that humans face, even if you can get them to Mars in one piece, then the, the dangers of the, on the surface, you know, the reduced gravity, the radiation. And the thing about robots is they're a lot less fussy, they're a lot less fragile, and you don't have to send so much kit with them. So in many ways, they're a much more efficient way of exploring. Today, robots can do everything that humans can do, Maybe they don't do it so efficiently. Maybe we just have to be a bit more patient. We'll get our science a bit more slowly. But at the minute, there's no pressing need to be sending humans. 
Sanjeev, you've been involved in the Curiosity mission, which is a pretty big mission. I mean, that's a mini-sized rover that's crawling around on Mars. Would you concur with what Carolyn's saying? Oh, not at all, I'm afraid. I'm a terrestrial geologist. I'm a geologist who works on Earth, does field work on Earth, and I've moved into the planetary sphere. And whilst Curiosity can do amazing things... It's incredibly slow for me. What we do in days, a human could do in minutes. And that's the issue, is that we've been on Mars for three years now. We've got some spectacular discoveries, but we can't look around. We can't go this way, that way. We can't make rapid decisions. We're not adaptable because of latency effects, etc. So I think a human on Mars could very, very rapidly do the sort of geological characterization, the geological science that... Even, you know, looking 10, 20 years ahead, a robot simply is not capable of doing just because of the human cognitive aptitudes. It's just technology, though, isn't it? I mean, it's just a question of writing better computer programs to run these things better. Have you tried doing geology? It's very, very hard. The the thing is that there's not simple patterns in the geological record. You know, scientifically, the first thing we're going to do when we get to Mars, is actually look at the geological science. We want to understand the geological evolution of Mars. Did life evolve? Finding those things is incredibly difficult. There's a lot of rock on Mars, and a rover maybe travels 20 kilometres in its lifetime. And, you know, I think Curiosity has just done over 10 kilometres. And secondly, there's large areas of Mars, which are very, very interesting, that it would be very difficult to get robots to. Carolyn, you're sort of nodding and shaking your head in equal measure. Well, I agree that it would be nice luxury to send human astronauts to do this job much more efficiently. I, I just dispute that it's actually required now. There are two questions. I mean, one is, of course, is whether we can do all the science with the rovers and the orbiters and even the stationary spacecraft such as Phoenix. Yes, they can do it, maybe more slowly, but it's... A matter of is getting the science just that much faster relevant for the huge cost it might bring and the huge danger to human humans going out there? Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, one has to, when you're making a decision about doing research, weigh up the pros and cons in terms of what I can get bang for my buck. And Sanjeev, what you're sort of suggesting is, yeah, let's get some humans on Mars, but the price, you think how much science we could actually do with the same spend, both from orbit, which is much cheaper, and also maybe even just from here on Earth? We could do a lot, um, but I think nobody's thinking that we're going to do this immediately. So the plans are in the next 20, 30 years for humans to Mars to do science properly. So I think it's the, it's the planning stages at the moment. But, Richard, did you want to come well, in? Well, I, I wanted to offer a compromise here. Something that the European Space Agency and NASA are seriously looking at is to have a mission to Phobos or a mission to the orbit of Mars and then be able to control rovers on the surface. So that way you eliminate the time delay and you can effectively have them as avatars on the surface. When you say one time the... delay, this is the problem that because it's so far to Mars that even at the speed of light, these radio control signals, you've got a latency of, you know, a delay of, of many, not just seconds, but minutes, hours, haven't you? Which is why they're building a lot of more autonomy into the, to the new rovers, like the ExoMars rover, which would be the European rover to Mars. But Tim Peake, the British European Space Agency astronaut who's flying to the space station in December, he will be doing one of these experiments and actually operating from the space station a rover in the Mars yard, which is a simulated Mars environment in Stevenage. So actually to, to simulate that. And Carolyn, what's the price as well? Of, you know, because you mentioned, you alluded to cost, everyone sort of talks about cost, but what, what do we think it's actually likely to start costing? I've got absolutely no idea. I mean, just thousands of billions would be my guess. I mean, maybe that's an exaggeration. I just wanted right, to come Warren back. Right, just waving his hand. He's got an idea of the price tag. <laughs> well, what, what do you think the price tag is? 
The lowest estimated costs that I've seen for human Mars missions are on the order of $10 billion or so. So for comparison with Curiosity, which was around $2 billion, a factor of four more potentially in the cost for a human mission. Yeah, certainly I think you can justify that. I just wanted to go back to Richard's compromise. If you're going to send astronauts all the way to Phobos, expose, you're still exposing them to the same danger. It's still going to not actually cost an awful lot less. And if you're going to go all the way to Phobos, well, you might as well just go to the surface of Mars. I don't think that's much of a compromise, really. I think, I think one of the things that, that this is a compromise option eliminates, at least in the short term, is the problem of getting to Mars and getting back off again because we've talked about sample return. When you talk to NASA scientists about this, no one has managed to get a, even a coffee cup-sized sample of material off Mars. So unless you're going to go on a one-way trip, which is what Mars One are proposing, getting back is a real, genuine concern. Sanjeev, because your question and your, your point is that we, we want some samples and it's very hard to do this sort of science but, when you're not on Mars. But more Mars. importantly... You don't just collect samples. As a geologist, you gain context, and that's very difficult to do from a distance. And so I think even doing it from Deimos or Phobos is really difficult. And I think what's happening now is really a serious attempt to sort of start thinking about resources on Mars and what you could use as propellant to get back. So I think, you know, that's, it's not going to happen instantly, but people are thinking about that. And they won't only consider that if they can do it, if the resources are there to be able to provide propellant to get humans back from the surface of Mars. Propellant equals rocket fuel. That's right. I think a key thing, though, that we're all in agreement is that we need robots at the minute. Whether or not we're going to be sending human astronauts to Mars, they're vital as scouts, really, to to prep, you know, just as precursors, to find where the resources are, the possible landing sites, to assess the, the climate, the radiation damage. We need to test things like we were just talking about the launch, the landing technology, uh, the piloting, and even just delivery of equipment, habitats, fuel, food, everything that we need is all going to be robotic even long before you send the astronauts. So whether or not you send the astronauts, we still need to develop the robot technology just as that scouting and that testing ground. In other words, we need them anyway, so we may as well just solve this problem in the course of solving the next one, don't we? Now, the other question is, of course, why do we want to go to Mars? What can we learn about Mars? Interestingly, this year's Christmas lectures at the Royal Institution are all about the future of space travel and space exploration, and they're being delivered by UCL's Kevin Fong. Mars, I think, is a large piece of the puzzle when it comes to asking the question of how ubiquitous life is in the universe. We know that four billion years ago, conditions on Mars were at least similar to, if not the same, as they were on Earth. We know that that was around about the time that life first arose on our planet. And so if we go to Mars and it proves to be sterile and always has been sterile, then it means that Earth is indeed very, very special and there's something particularly Uh, special about it that allows a life to claw its way in and develop if we go there and find that there is life now or there ever has been life on mars it probably means that life is ubiquitous in the universe because uh, it suggests that wherever life has a chance it will claw in at least in some basic form so i think it is essential that we explore mars i think it has some of the most important answers that we seek in the 21st century Kevin Fong, who's clearly very eager to see the secrets of Mars unlocked. The idea was to build an organism that was able to create a drug and then could effectively turn itself into a pill. 
In this month's Naked Genetics podcast, we delve into the world of synthetic biology, building living machines from molecular parts that can do anything you can imagine. Plus, is sociability in your genes? And our gene of the month is looking for wedded bliss. Listen and download now at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith. Ryan MacDonald, who is with us, you're a a scientist, an astrophysicist, and also someone who's put himself forward as a candidate for a human mission to Mars. Is the science that Kevin is alluding to there what attracts you, or, or is it something else that makes you want to be one of those pioneers? Well, I think the science is certainly one of the largest driving personal factors. And this question of whether we're alone in the universe and if there is life on Mars, does it share a common origin with life here on the Earth, or is it entirely genetically distinct? That's a question that's driven my focus in science for, well, for as long as I can remember, really. It's why I want to work on exoplanets, effectively. But planets I think also... that are outside our own solar system. Yes, yes exactly. Yeah, distant planets. But I think there's also, there's the wider picture, which I think is the inspiration factor, which we'll come on to a bit more later. The mm. idea that we can establish a home from home on another planet so that if things really turn nasty here for whatever reason, we, we can bail out over there. This it's is not... sort of dubbed the lifeboat scenario, isn't it? Well, the worrying thing is that we know from the fossil record that 99.9% of all species that have existed on Earth have gone extinct at one point. And particularly, if we look at the discoveries that we've made from statistics from the Kepler Space Telescope, looking for planets orbiting other stars over, since 2009, it seems to be implying that there could be 40 billion Earth-sized planets in the habitable zones of their stars, and yet we've not seen any evidence to date of life elsewhere in the universe. So that could potentially mean that we're extraordinarily special, and so I would argue that we have almost a moral obligation to protect not just ourselves, but life as a whole here on the Earth. Jill, where, do, where does the politics sit on this? With regards to the lifeboat scenario, that is one that's used often to justify the idea that we need to start colonizing uh, planets elsewhere. I would just say that I think there's a couple of political and ethical concerns here. First of all, there are opportunity costs when we spend on going to other planets. And it makes me a little bit uncomfortable, the idea that this makes our own planet sort of disposable or that we're giving up on it. And so I think, although I'm generally in favor of space exploration and eventual colonization, I think that we need to not forget our home planet and the value of that. And secondly, is this issue of the inherent value of landscapes and environments um, outside of Earth and our ethical obligations to them. So if we go to a planet, I think there's a sliding scale of ethical obligations to them, depending on whether or not it's a dead environment or if there's a, a biosphere with some sort of life whether or not they're sentient life, intelligent life. But I don't think we should automatically assume the arrogance of in order to need to preserve ourselves because we've caused problems on our own planet, on planet Earth, that we automatically have the right to go out and, and colonize other planets as, a, as a, a backup. Richard? Well, I mean, this lifeboat idea has, I mean, lots of great people have said this. Perhaps Mars shouldn't be the ultimate destination, though, if you're talking about a lifeboat. Earth. And maybe we should think of it as stepping stones. So you go the Earth and you keep the Earth because everyone who looks down on the Earth, every astronaut, all they talk about is not how great the moon is or how <laughs> great the space station is because it's clearly yep. not. It's how brilliant the Earth is when you look at it. So let's not forget the Earth. That's really important. But maybe you should look at stepping stones. So you say, right, we've got the space station. You then go to the moon. You then use the moon to Mars. You then maybe have some sort of 
giant starship. You start to look at ways of leaving the solar system because, frankly, I mean, Mars is horrible. I mean, it's dead. It's barren. It's bleak. It's desolate. There's not enough sunlight. It's rusty. It's a grim place. You would not want to stay there for long. But if you can use it as a stepping stone beyond that, then the lifeboat starts making sense. You start talking about colonies that could leave the solar system that could go out to the galaxy and we could colonise the galaxy, colonise the universe. Ryan, it, it doesn't sound terribly inviting uh, as your future home, the picture that Richard's painting. Well, surprisingly, Mars is actually the most habitable planet in the solar system apart from the yeah, Earth. You haven't many to choose from, have <laughs> you, really? I mean. So, I mean, we have to just, just look, say, the day on Mars, for instance, it's 24 hours with an extra 36 minutes or so, so we don't have to do any incredible crazy engineering like altering the spin of a planet like you'd have to do on venus incidentally you're not going to be set on fire immediately on the surface of mars or be crushed by the pressure like you would on venus either mars crucially everything we're learning about it seems to be suggesting that it was a more habitable planet around three to four billion years ago particularly we've been learning this from curiosity and so with regards to the legal implications potentially of should we be modifying environments or landscapes on Mars? Perhaps we could consider that what we're actually doing is just restoring and fixing Mars to how it was billions of years ago. Uh, Jill, where, where do we stand on the idea of what the picture that Ryan's painting, which is we go to Mars and we basically mess with it to make it more Earth-like? There's a couple of things that come to mind. First of all, I think it's worth questioning who it is that we're going to be sending out. I mean, they would essentially be the vanguard of of humanity. And, you know, do we want this to be done by countries or companies and so on? And the other thing is there is a legal infrastructure that's been in place since the 60s and the 70s, which establishes that outer space is neutral territory, including celestial bodies, and specifically that nation states can't lay claim to celestial bodies. I don't think that this is is going to um, restrict uh, potential future colonization. And I think it's an infrastructure that we need to work within. It's governed by five main treaties, four of which have been widely ratified. But we will need to start sort of unbundling what that means in terms of mining the resources, uh, you know, whether uh, also uh, individual countries are required to be responsible for the objects that are launched into outer space and have legal liability responsibilities in case things go wrong. If we've got humans up there, there's going to be issues like criminal liability. So there's a lot of legal issues that are going to have to be unpacked and overlapped on top of this pre-existing um, deep legal infrastructure that we've had in place for the last 50 years or so. Mind you, if Carolyn's robots take over, then uh, we may end up having to have robot courts, mightn't we? Carolyn, just looking at the practicalities, though, it sounds lovely. Let's turn Mars into a home from home by terraforming it. Is that reasonable? Is that scientifically plausible to do that on the scale of a whole planet? Well, I guess it depends how much of a rush you're in. You know, if it really is a lifeboat, well, then I think we're all shot because it's going to take, I would guess, several millennia to happen. If you want to terraform a whole planet, you're talking about changing its climate, changing its surface. So not only do you have to thicken and enrich the atmosphere, you have to make it warmer. You need to perhaps introduce some greenhouse gas, you know, methane, ammonia, that warms up the carbon dioxide, thickens the atmosphere. There's a lot that's going to happen, and we could do it. I'm not saying it isn't technologically possible. I do share a lot of Jill's reservations about, you know, whether we should do it and just all of that. 
But a key thing is that Mars does not have a strong magnetic field. It doesn't have the magnetosphere. So even if you build up this wonderful atmosphere, you warm up the planet, you need to retain that atmosphere. I was going to say, how do you stop that atmosphere being whipped away by the very process that has left Mars this prune of a planet that it is right now? As Ryan was saying... Mars was once a much more hospitable planet. It had this thick atmosphere. You know, it had the volcanic activity. We even think it had a strong magnetic field, but it doesn't now. And so you're leaving this wonderful new atmosphere being stripped away. Um, So perhaps if you're really going to do it, maybe you are going to be terraforming Mars, but maybe not start off with the whole planet. Maybe start off with a few select biomes, perhaps as Richard suggests, start off with the moon, find a nice crater near some resources, near some sunlight, do the terraforming or, you know, have a try at terraforming on a very local scale within easy reach of Earth and then move on to doing similar, similar things on Mars, building these biomes, doing doing things slowly rather than just wading in and potentially wrecking a whole planet because, you know, again, as Jill said, our track record on Earth isn't brilliant. So we need to be very sure about what we're doing. Now, a mission to Mars is regarded by many as the next giant leap. So let's first of all take a look back at the legacy of the last giant leap. Connie Orbach has been looking at one of history's defining speeches. But why some say the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why, 35 years ago, fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others too. In 1962, the then United States President, John F. Kennedy, gave a historic speech at Rice University, Houston, when he announced the USA's commitment to sending an American to the moon by the end of the decade. In the 1960s, travel to the moon was just a bigger challenge as the Mars trip seems today, and many of the arguments for and against were the same. To be sure, all this costs us all a good deal of money. This year's space budget is three times what it was in January 1961, and it is greater than the space budget of the previous eight years combined. That budget now stands at $5,400,000,000 a year, a staggering sum, though somewhat less than we pay for cigarettes and cigars every year. Of course, a challenge of this level had more objectives than purely to inspire and the political motives were almost certainly the greatest influence on America's success. The space race became an extension of the Cold War, and the Russians had twice beaten the USA, first with the satellite Sputnik, and then with human spaceflight. Kennedy needed a challenge that he felt he could win to pull the American people together and reaffirm America's status as a leading world power. Today, human space travel is once again on the agenda, and the challenge is even bigger. Could it be that we're at the start of yet another space race? If this capsule history of our progress teaches us anything, it is that man in his quest for knowledge and progress is determined and cannot be deterred. The exploration of space will go ahead, whether we join in it or not. And it is one of the great adventures of all time. And no nation 
which expects to be the leader of other nations, can expect to stay behind in this race for space. John F. Kennedy there with his landmark moon speech. We'll come to the question of whether there's a space race going on in a moment. I suspect Jill will have something to contribute to that. But first of all, Richard, they talked about stimulus of science and the injection of vast amounts of money. Is it a reality that you put this money in and it doesn't just get spent in the sky? It does turn into tangible asset value here on Earth? Oh, absolutely. You can you can actually look. Uh, there is evidence, direct evidence, that the Apollo program stimulated education, stimulated the PhD, stimulated technology, all sorts of reasons why it was a good thing. The tragedy was that it wasn't really a giant leap. It was a step and then a step back because we're not there now. We don't have a moon base. We don't have any of this stuff. But there are still people who are inspired by Apollo, very much so. Young tech entrepreneurs. I was talking to one the other day in Los Angeles. Uh, He's started up a a new company and has commissioned an artist to do a full-size picture of a lunar lander on the wall of the building where the lunar lander was originally built, because that's where they are. That's where they set their tech company up. And they are inspired by these guys. But were they inspired as much as that amount of money could buy you if you just inspired scientists to develop things here on Earth? Well, I think the danger is you can get into this, oh, we could do this or we could do that. It's a ludicrous argument because we can have healthcare, we can have education, we can have science on Earth and we can do space stuff. And if you start getting into the, oh, we only do space stuff because it will produce Teflon or it'll produce, you know, better materials or Vel- all Velcro, those. Wasn't it? There, you know, th- th- there, are, there are so many reasons to do it. Um, and you can draw an economic, you can draw an economic case for it. You can draw up a technological case for it. But I think the real case is aspiration, inspiration, and the fact that these people who walked on the moon, these missions, these amazing people who went to the moon, are still inspiring people today and still inspiring entrepreneurs today. Well, that that justifies it in my mind. And uh, David Bowie songs are more popular than ever. Well, well indeed, yeah. <laughs> and uh, Jill, are we seeing? Do you think a sort of space race Mark II now? And uh, and is that a good thing? I don't want to downplay the uh, significance of the the scientific achievements during that time, and certainly it was inspirational. But I don't think it's worth whitewashing uh, the geopolitics of the first space race. A lot of people don't realize that before the United States decided to land on the moon, they thought about bombing it instead. Also, the day that they left the plaque that said, we came in peace and all mankind, it was the height of the the Vietnam War. And so politics was very much a driver at that time. And it's worth keeping that in mind, if only because it helps us think about how we're going to continue space exploration and exploitation in the future. So we need to sort of remind ourselves that that is part of the history. Is that repeating itself now? I'm uncomfortable with using the direct analogy of a second space race for a couple of reasons. The main one being that it's a different landscape now. In the 60s and the 70s, it was primarily states that were acting in outer space, that were entities who had space capabilities. And we've seen a a diversification of the types of actors that we have in outer space, not only there being more space-faring countries, but we have private actors, we have individuals, and also a complicated blending of these actors. So rarely is it just a state government that has these capabilities. And so it's an awkward analogy in my mind, and I don't think it does us much good to sort of superimpose that narrative uh, because it it sets us up for a potential uh, vision of competition that might not necessarily be there. Having said that, politics is, is 
behind it. And there is going to be a level of prestige related to making strides in this direction. But who, own, who owns Mars? Well, exactly. Jill. I was just going to say, I mean, as we know from the, the first treaty that was established over outer space in the 1960s, which is widely respected, nobody owns any part of outer space. It's the common heritage of mankind um, and no country. Well, that's part of the problem. It specifies that no country can lay claim to a celestial body, but we can presume that that will apply to private companies eventually as well. But so that if, if Ryan not... ends up being the first one there, will Ryan be king of Mars? <laughs> Absolutely not. He can be a squatter, uh, but he cannot own it. And and I think it's interesting that countries have nonetheless managed to place flags on the moon, not just the United States, but five other countries. And so there's clearly a political significance in landing on these planets, but it doesn't imply ownership. Ryan, are you comfortable with that? You're not going to be crowned anytime soon. Well, I think increasingly what we're going to see is collaboration in space in the future because no one nation will be able to afford something that's insane in terms of the cost of terraforming, which would cost around at least a trillion dollars to be able to do. So we're going to see public-private partnerships working together in order to make this happen. We're already seeing with private companies supplying the International Space Station that they're driving down the costs. And we've just seen recently, actually, that it looks like Europe and Russia are looking to team up together to enable a moon base eventually. So I'm very optimistic about the future. It's no longer a race. It's a cooperative endeavour. Just asking you a personal question for a minute. Are you not uncomfortable with the prospect that you wouldn't come back? No, I think that's that's part of the main reason. It's the attraction. Is it really it's... that bad here on no, Earth? No, I mean, no, I know, I... I know funding in science is, is a struggle and, <laughs> you know, and, and this is probably one way to surmount that. But really? No, I think it makes sense doing a one-way trip for the first way to do it. You can make the economic case that it's cheaper, you get more return also. But I think the inspirational factor of having a group of four people from four different continents representing everyone, conducting scientific research on the surface, leaving a lasting legacy as opposed to just going there collecting some rocks and bringing them back. I certainly hope that we could bring some rocks back, but I, for one, would want to stay there for the rest of my life to maximise the impact that I can leave behind for everyone back here on the Earth. Uh, Carolyn, would you go? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Is it just because it's an inhospitable place? Because, I mean, as a space scientist, you don't feel the same allure. Um, no, it's because I think I know a bit too much about Mars and know that I probably would not enjoy being on the surface. I'd love to see it, don't get me wrong, um, but I've kind of got too much invested here on Earth by now. I think I'm quite happy to stay put. Today we've discussed just some of the many arguments for and against a trip to Mars, but in the end it looks like we're probably going to go anyway, be it through government organisations or private companies. And in fact, scheduled from the 27th to the 30th of October, uh, NASA have workshops to discuss potential landing sites for a human Mars mission. So Sanjeev, what's that all about? Yeah, it's pretty amazing. So next week there's a meeting in Houston where it's the first really serious look at examination of potential uh, human landing sites and what they call exploration zones. Uh, it's a three-day meeting and they're going to be starting, people are putting forward proposed landing sites, exploration zones, not only to consider what you can do scientifically at these sites, you know, what geological problems you can solve, you know, the history of Mars, you know, habitability, discovering ancient life, but also to look for resources that colonies on Mars could survive on. So it's it's a, both a scientific and an engineering endeavour. So, you know, scientists and engineers over the next, uh, over, over three days next week are going to be presenting and discussing uh, this potential. And that really sets the process going. You know, the, the idea is that potentially NASA would be sending humans to Mars in the 2030s. and But we need to start building science case 
and developing the engineering skills required to be able to do that. Thanks, Sanjeev. That's Sanjeev Gupta. And thank you also this week to Carolyn Crawford, Ryan MacDonald, Richard Hollingham and Jill Stewart for joining us on our panel. Thank you also to Connie Orbach for production. Join us next week when we'll be firmly back on planet Earth, exploring the new world of electric vehicles. And we'll find out what happens when a naked scientist gets his hands on a Tesla electric supercar and a top-of-the-range Merck sports car. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith, and thank you very much for listening. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.